Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Have we got a show for you today. One of the best and most unique performers to ever grace the screen joins me today, Goldie Hawn. Goldie has been making us laugh and smile for decades with her impeccably timed uh, comedy and sunny disposition. Beyond that thousand watt grin is a fascinating life full of hard work, persistence and remarkable life lessons that will be sure to brighten your day. And her focus now is not just on her own mental health, which she's nailed. It's on everyone's and most importantly, our children's. Goldie, so good to have you here. Thanks for coming on. I'm so happy to be here with you. You. This is really fun. Aww. I mean, we, it could have been at a wonderful restaurant and do the thing that we do off off camera, but it's just really great to see you. And thanks for having me. Really oh, my pleasure. It. You're such a doll. It's a privilege I to call share you a one friend. Thing with you. I have yeah. a yellow lab, an English puppy yellow lab. English. This guy is eating my feet right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can relate to this. No, I mean, you got I, another I, little I, guy going behind you. Who's that other little guy trying to get out? He's like, she didn't mention me and I'm out of here. It's great. Look at him. Um, Who's the little guy? Look at him. The guy over your right shoulder. This is Benny. Okay. They can't live without each other, by the way. It's like the, you know, the mouse and the giant, but it's so fun. And I hear you've got one too. So we, you know, we both have these oh wonderful, amazing yellow labs. You English. don't, you so, don't want to get me started. I, I have my yellow English. She's a doll. Thunder. She's three. Then we thought... Oh. If one is great, two would be even better. And we got Strudwick. And he is about nine months old. And no sooner do I tell the world that Strudwick is getting better because he's been a menace his first nine months than in the course of 24 hours, he ate a box of markers. He ate, um, he, he broke, this, broke this decorative vase we had. He ate a loaf of bread. Um, and he took an enormous shit in our family room. Yeah, it is so crazy. We're dealing with the same thing with this dog. I mean, we love him to pieces, but he ate like the side of the house. I mean, yes. we thought we were really gonna, like, here's an area for him, you know, to be and play and whatever, and it's contained and nothing. No, no, he started eating the side of the house. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't put him there, right? So, I mean, it's just, it's like that. He's getting a little bit better, but, you know, watch him every second. Yes, um, that's how it is. Yeah, we may have to. He just, yeah, I may have to like um, move him out of the room eventually. Yeah. No worries. Anyway, it's great. Thankfully, we have some. Here. We have some commercial breaks. Um, yes. No. I know our older dog is looking at Stradwick like they've told you not to do that a million times. Stop it. They're going to get rid of you if you keep this up, which we aren't. But man, oh man, yeah, he's either as stupido or just bad. I don't know. Oh, it's too great. I swear. And anyway, we're having a great time. What are you drinking there? What, so, what's in your cup? I have a coffee. So I'm, you know, I'm drinking my, my third cup. I've been getting up very, very early this morning. I mean, you know, early news, working in early news is really quite a grind. It's great. We have to have early, you know, early news shows. But everybody that I know gets up at three in the morning. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting life because you have to take a nap. I mean, if I was, you know, on a new show or today show or, you know, whatever, any of these different shows, Fox, you, you really wake up with the, you know, before the birds and, and then you do the show and then you finish for the day, which is great. But ultimately, you know, I you walked around it like a zombie. Mm. So I've been doing that, talking about what we're going to talk about as well. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm great. It's all good, but it's, 
it's it's really interesting interesting way to spend your life. You know, yeah. I've I've gotten to, gone to dinner you know, with some gals who do the show and do different shows in the morning, and they really have to get to bed early, and it's an early dinner, and uh, you know, waking up at three or four in the morning. So it's, yeah. You- um, you uh, you get up early and you think because I used to work this schedule for a while and you think, OK, great, I'm going to have the rest of my day to be with yeah. my kids, to get my stuff done. And what you realize is you're just garbage for the rest of the day. You you without a massive nap, you can't function. You can't function. It, it's re- it's really interesting. So anyway, I'm, this is a short way of saying I'm glad I'm, I'm not having every day grind at the news. <laughs> yes, I don't blame you. Yeah, because you want to, you're promoting your program. We've talked about it before and, we'll, and we will talk about it today too, Mind Up, which I love and I think is needed now more than ever for all sorts of reasons. It's only gotten more necessary since the last time I interviewed you on camera. Um, but let's yeah. start with, let's start broader. Let's start with you. Let's start with what's happening in our country. Let's start with COVID because I wonder you've been out in LA for a lot of this, you know, past two years and LA and New York have been two of the most locked down, masked up, closed up cities. And how has that been affecting you guys? How have you been navigating that? Uh, We have navigated this. I I have to say, you know, we're the lucky ones. And I did a lot of, uh, I did, I did a lot of things there to talking to people, whether it was schools or principals or school superintendents, as well as um, I, I spoke to a lot of people in the UK as well using sort of the ways of, of mind up and how we uh, kind of manage our emotions and mm. and and breathe and, and really focus on how to de-stress ourselves with this sense of the unknown uh personally um we did we did pretty well there are so many people that were not so it was always a a kind of an apology which is you know i've got it really great i have a garden outside i have a nice house there's a lot of things that i enjoyed to tell you the truth having to stay home i didn't have to get on a plane i i I fly around a lot so i was you know basically somebody put my feet to the ground and it was this covid we were all frightened we washed everything that all of our groceries stayed outside for 24 hours i mean we did all of these very extreme measures because we were afraid that this particular virus was on everything absolutely everything anything you touched it did wiping down all of our, our doorknobs not not knowing who was at the front door on the other hand what that did do for me and i think for uh quite a few people it had had a more an effect in a positive way and i think a lot of it is because of the of, because of the anxiety because of the workload that happens through in your life and something happened to everyone that said i can stay home now mm-hmm. i can be with my family now i can connect to the things that matter the most and in some ways that's what happened to me mm-hmm. is that rat race of running doing having to you know leave go to new york go to europe go to london go you know a lot of things that i did because of work and the program and a lot of things i did because i didn't want to miss out on anything and then other things that had to do with a different sort of work so i got to not, i put my suitcase away i went outside in my backyard and i watched everything clear up i watched the sky get bluer i didn't hear any noise i didn't have traffic i i didn't hear airplanes i And then I started looking at all the things that were clearing up, like not just the air, but but rivers, rivers that had been polluted for years. 
and I was looking at my my my, my river, rivers in India actually because I spent a lot of time there, and they were getting clean again. And I thought, how much of us as human beings actually are creating where we are today? Mm. All the things we could not be doing, you know. However, we've got you know in the industry, commerce. There's all kinds of things that have to run, but I realized how much we matter as humans what we do how we behave how we think how we sleep so there was a level of stress on one level for me that I didn't have I cooked more I spent time with my son it was precious time I was you know it's one of those things that you think oh my god this is so scary but sometimes when you have to go inside, there are some blessings in that. Mm. Well, but- I mean, you, you've been mindful of family and connections your whole life. I mean, I, one of the things that's extraordinary about you is you have um, you and Kurt together have four kids and three out of four of them are pretty famous and very successful in Hollywood on camera and behind the camera. And they all seem pretty normal. I mean, that's what's so weird about you, right? It's like, I was going to ask, so how did you, how did you manage that? But I think I know you, you prioritize them. You, you found a way to actually spend time with your own children. Yeah, we do. And, and, and one of the reasons is, is that, you know, at number one, Kurt, like me, I mean, we just, we're just family people and nothing will take, take, take that away. Okay, so if we have an opportunity to be together, we are. In fact, Wyatt just finally moved right in the neighborhood. I mean, we're so excited. We're all together. So it's really a special unit that we have. You know, we can drop everybody's house. We can be together. All the children can be together. I mean, right now, okay, I have uh, Oliver and the family. They're living with us. Why? Because they're fixing their floors and they're, they're doing stuff. And so they've come over here for a few months to live. It's just, you know, we're just a couple miles away from each other. Mm-hmm. But I, I look at it and I'm thinking, if we don't value what we've got, our family is everything, then they're not going to flourish. I mean, so you say, okay, these are normal people. But my father was the one that said to me, go, I want you to look out at that ocean. I want you to stand out there. And I want you to know how small you are. I want you to know that you're basically a part of the whole, and that's important. But if you get too big for your britches, just remember who you are. Mm. So there was reality in my life that was always about what the truth was. It wasn't what one some highfalutin dream was. And so I think the basics of being together, the sense that we are always focused on each other for the greater good, that to me could could bring children in the world and create a better world. Mm. Well, I mean, you've lived it. I've watched it. You know, you're you're one of those people who doesn't have to go to every Hollywood party so that you can see a bunch of famous people and watch them look over shoulders to see who's more famous, more powerful. You can do that in your living room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really true. I mean, I don't have that um, need. And I, I never did. I, I will say that when I was younger, you know, you were, 
you went out more, you know, I mean, just being young by, but, but by the nature of being young, you know, you, you know, you have your, your group of people and, and it was a time when it was the Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson and, you know, all that. I still always felt like a little bit of an outsider and, and I was an outsider at school. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't, I never had 18 girlfriends I never belonged to a sorority. You know, I had very special girlfriends. They were my best girlfriends. I had, I met one girl, my only girlfriend. I was two years old and I went over to her house and I asked her if she would play with me. She was just a little bit older than me. That's, and she's still my best friend. Hmm. And I've lost two of my best friends to, for pancreatic cancer. Hmm. And, you know, when you lose your friends, there's a piece of you that goes away. Doesn't mean that you don't go on. It doesn't mean that you don't live your life. But when you talk about who matters to you, it isn't the masses. Like there, it isn't you know being a star. It isn't who you hang with or the parties that you go to. It doesn't have much meaning. What has meaning is is the people in your life, yeah. and that's where I've always looked at it. Yeah. Otherwise, how can you have time to have intimacy? You know, and intimacy is is great. So so the people that I dine with or am hanging out with for any level, it's not because they're anybody special mm. or, or yeah, that way. It's yeah, you're not that person. You you don't seem to me like someone who went to Hollywood chasing fame. Like, well, I read about your background and just from our conversations, you wanted to be a dancer. You love dancing. Your mom owned a dance studio. And, and you maybe were going to be a chorus girl or a prima ballerina, but it wasn't yeah. like I need to be a star to fill some void inside of me, which I do think drives a lot of people to get into the entertainment industry. I think you're right. I mean, there's something about wanting to be seen. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of psyche involved, all the psychology involved, you know, as to why you want to be seen, you know. Um, I, I didn't quite grow up that way, although it, I'm a performer by nature. There's no question. I mean, it's really I mean, obviously dancing for some, I'm three years old. I mean, I, I was a performer, right? And uh, I was happy. I was a happy kid. I didn't, you know, I didn't go out and seek fame and fortune. In fact, I'll tell you a story. So <clears throat> I was in New York. I just got to New York. It was in May, I remember. And I got to New York because... I was dancing at the World's Fair. So I went for an audition in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from. And I made it. You know, I made the audition. I went, oh, my God. I went home. Mom, Daddy, I, you know, I got the audition. I'm going to be dancing at the World's Fair. <clears throat> so all this was like, you know, really, really exciting. And I went to New York. And in May, I was only there a month. And I walked across the street. And this guy stopped me. And he said to me, I'm not trying to put the make on you. I'm not trying to do this. Please believe me. He showed me his watch. It was kind of, I guess, gold. And he said, I go with Tuesday Weld. And Tuesday Weld was an actress back in that day in the 60s. And, and I went, oh, wow, okay. So I started you know, to trust him. I, I didn't um, look at him as a, a bad guy or anything. And he said to me, I, I just, I just got to tell you, you look just like a character that Al Cap created. Um, and he was a cartoonist. But he was also, you know, sort of, a, you know, a guy who represented a certain consciousness. And, and so anyway, I said, oh, wow, 
Oh, Al Cap, Lil Abner. Oh, I did Lil Abner in high school. I mean, we did a lot of shows there. And, you know, oh, I know all about that. And he said, oh, great. He said, well, listen, let me, I've got to talk to you. He said, because I think you'd be really great for Lil Abner. We're doing it on NBC. And you look like a character that he created. And it's a new character. And she's Tenderly Ferrickson. Well, there was, you know, I don't know for those who don't know what Lil Abner was, but it was, you know, it was, kind of political in a way, um, but it was it was a cartoon and it was a very famous cartoon. And the show, Little Abner, had songs, you know, I mean, what is it? What is it? Something, Jake, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the song, but Little Abner anyway was very famous. So I said, great. So I believed him. So I got into his car and we're driving and he dropped me off at an audition that I was going to. And he dropped me off. And as he was driving, he said, you know what? I think you're going to be a really big star. And I looked at him and I said, why? He said, because you have an unusual face. And I thought, hmm, well, he didn't <laughs> tell me I was pretty and he didn't tell me I was beautiful. He said I had an interesting face, which actually, I mean, I think I did, right? Too, my eyes are too big, I had all kinds of things. I was not, you know, but I was pretty scrutinizing about my my face. Although my mother didn't like that I was. She said, don't don't mess with my work. <laughs> and I said, okay, my mom, but you know, I got my, you know, nose was everything. I was a thing. So I believed him. But the one thing that scared me, and it's a long story to get around to my perception. I didn't want to be a star. It actually scared me. I thought, I, you know, I don't want to be that person. I just want to be normal. Mm. I just want to, you know, I, I was a dancer. I had a craft. I had something I did well. And I also had a job. So for me, that they were going to make me into a star. And then I eventually, the story goes on, which I, I won't go into. But No, no, that, we have to that, talk about that jerk Al Cap. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Al Cap is an asshole portion of our interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless him. May he rest in peace. Um, yeah, he was the one that, you know, okay, so we'll go on. So now we get to the time where I'm supposed to meet Al Cap. And I had a script and I was reading of this script and I, you know, and I thought I read it at home and I thought, okay, this is cool. It's real. It's a script. You know, nothing's fake about it. So I go to Park Avenue on the time I was supposed to meet with him. And um, they and the door opens. Eric, the butler. Oh, Miss Hahn, you know, we're waiting for you. I went, oh, that's great. Oh, and I was like in Fifth Avenue. And I mean, I, it's like, what the hell happening to me? I mean, next thing I know, I'm like in this like rich guy's apartment and he's famous and his name's Al Cap, and I know him, and I did this show. I mean, it was the whole thing. And so he said, so I sit down, and he said, Mr. Cap isn't here right now, um, but he'll be back in a moment. He said, but um, I'm bringing this tea, and he walks in with the tea set. When I tell you, it was pure silver, and it was so heavy that I, it was kind of like weird when he said to me, you need to pour his tea. He likes all his women to pour his tea. And now I'm practicing and I picked up the teapot and I'm looking at the tea and I'm like <clears throat> trying to pour it. And it was so heavy. I was sitting too deep in a sofa. It was too hard. The fulcrum point was not acceptable. And so anyway, and he walks with his, you know, I, he, I didn't know he had a wooden leg, um, but he did. Such, yeah. Such and a so, detail. 
start drag. You know, he picks, you know, he, well, he walked like he had a wooden leg. And and then he said to me, oh, and he had this like sliver, lascivious like, grin, kind of, it was really ugly. And he said, I'll be back in a minute. I'm just going to slip into something. And he came back in a robe. Oh God! So now I am like freaking out because, you know, I, the, I'm recognizing something's going wrong. So I'm there. I was 19 years old and he comes and he, and he talks to me and I said, oh, we sat down, we talked. Now I'm thinking to myself, I better let him know I'm a good girl. I better let him know whatever he's thinking is not, it's not going to happen. So I told him that I, my mom and my dad, and the fact that, you know, I, they wanted me to marry a Jewish dentist and I wanted him to know that I was religious. <laughs> I wanted to know that I had, you know, scruples and I had, you know, the whole thing. I just wanted him to know I was a good girl. Mm. And so now he said, well, let's do the reading. So I started to do the reading with him and um, I was stood up and I'm doing the reading off of the script. And he says to me, now you don't have to speak so loud. This isn't theater. This is now going to be, um, you know, it's film. So you need to just speak regularly. And I went, oh, what a good note. So now um, I got, you know, into the idea that it wasn't staged because that's really all I've done. And, and then he said, um, now walk away uh, over there in the room. And now when you walk toward me, uh, I want you to just kind of look at me like I'm the camera and, and you know, just kind of look stupid. Look, look, look like an imbecile or, you know, like that, you know, that look, you know. And I thought, OK, so, you know, I did my dance walk and I walked there and I remember I tried to look stupid and I was looking at him and all this stuff. And then he said, well, now this is good. He said, no. he said, you know what? He said, I'm going to get you with David Merrick's coaches. He's one of the greatest. Uh, David Merrick's one of the great people, you know, on Broadway back then. And I went, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He said, I'm going to have him work with you. You, you. you got something. He said, by the way, could you got, walk over there and lift up? Because your legs, you could be Daisy May. Your legs are good. Said, Can I see your legs? Mm -hmm. And so I had this, I remember exactly what I was wearing. It was a pink knit dress. It wasn't totally mini at that point. But I picked it up over my knees and I showed him partial. And then he went higher. And I, I think I lifted up for just another like inch. And he said, no, no, higher. And I went, oh, and I put them down. I put my, my skirt down. And he said to me, now come on over here and give me a kiss. And I was, I was shocked, mm. but, I, but I expected something like that. And so I sat, I went over to the couch because I wanted him I wanted him to know that I wasn't going to run out of the room. I was going to stay calm and, and whatever. And he pulled over his, you know, it was like his night, whatever that, you know, that robe was. And his, he was, his whole apparatus, if you know what I'm talking about, mm. his whole wiener was literally like lying there. Oh. And I looked at it. I looked at it and I said, oh, oh, Mr. Cap. I'll never get a job like this. He said, well, I've had them all. And nothing will become of you. And I said, that's okay. I said, I'm a dancer anyway. But I'll never get a job like this. He said, well, you know, you, you just, just go back and marry a Jewish dentist. 
Oh, wow. And I said, oh, I might. So I walked out and then I realized that I couldn't take the L because I didn't have the time and I wasn't near it. And I had to get to my to the World's Fair. So the World's Fair was going on. I said, Mr. Cap, I'm so sorry. It's late. I can't get the L. And I, I just don't have any money to get a taxi. And he threw $20 at me. So I got in the taxi and I go to, to the Texas Pavilion, which is where I was dancing. And I was so upset. And I had been seeing this guy that was under the bar. He was a bartender. And we were dancing above the bar, as Can Can Girls did. And we danced. And I was so sad. I felt so bad. And that night, I did the show. It was three shows. And it was heavy duty, Can Can, and also Go Go and all this stuff. And he said, come on, I'll take you out for a drink. And I went, Okay. So I go out, get in his car, and we go into the bar at the Ondine, which is just under the 59th Street Bridge. And I had a scotch. And then I had another scotch rocks. And his friend was there that we met. And then that was over, so I'd had two cocktails. And he backed up, got the car, around First Avenue, and he starts accelerating. And I'm in the middle and there are no, there's no uh, seats. There's no, no um, seatbelts. And I thought, do you have to go so fast, you know, in between stoplights? And he said, no, 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 it's okay. Meanwhile, everybody in the car had had a cocktail or two. I don't, I wouldn't say we were drunk and whatever, but definitely, you know, under some level of influence. Hmm. And then he went down West Side Highway. And we were on West Side Highway going much too fast. And it was quite different then. It had potholes and it had windy roads and it was a single road. And it was really not a great road to speed on. And I looked over my right shoulder sitting in the middle of an Oldsmobile with, you know, about no bucket seats. Right. And I looked over to this cab and this taxi cab. Either he ran, he fell asleep or he, he just ran us off the road. But we went into a light pole at about 45 miles an hour. Mm. My and goodness. Not coming. And I went underneath the dashboard to hide from the crash. And I woke up, but I really was not in my body. And I looked down, and it was paramedics that were pulling me out from underneath the dashboard. And asking is she alive and they were touching my heart and ripping my clothes so they could get to me but i saw all of it and then i woke up in the hospital mm. and that's when i was there and they basically did an x-ray on my head i had a concussion and i had one little nick on my leg and wow. i now the two guys and one of them, the boyfriend that I'd had, walked into my room and he had a broken nose and a few little scratches. They sent me home, which I don't remember. I lived alone in a roach infested one room place on 70th and between Broadway and Amsterdam. And I didn't have my mom. I didn't have anybody. And I got a phone call. 
And he said, you fucked things up, didn't you? You really fucked me up. I told you to be nice to him. I told you to be nice to him. And I said, Peter, please go back to Tuesday World and leave me alone. And I went into the bathroom. I threw up again. I came back and I realized I needed my mother. Mm. But for some, how, I don't know. I remembered this guy's number. And I called him up and I said, I'm alone in New York. I know, you know, you're not happy with me. But I was in a very bad automobile accident last night. He hung up. He ran to my apartment. He lived near me. He came to me with roses that he got and he was crying. And he said, I'm so sorry. You're such a nice girl. And I, I'm just a pimp for Alcat. That's all I am. Oh my goodness. I'm really sorry. And he got the ambulance. He took me back to the hospital. He made sure I had everything I needed, a tetanus shot, whatever they didn't give me. And, you know, he, took care of me. And, and that was very, very interesting. My God, because I get so many things about human nature in that story. By the way, that will, that will officially conclude our Al Cap is an asshole chapter. Um, but <laughs> so, so many things in there, right? Like the young trusting ingenue given opportunity or the, the shot at it, you know, the old grizzly wooden legged I'll make you a star guy who tries to take advantage of her. I mean, that scene that you describe is straight out of the movie Bombshell, though I know it. I, I mean, I heard it from you long before that. I realized that, that's not where it came know. from. They, they, they must have stolen it from you. It's I, almost identical. And and learning bit by bit that she's there for very different reasons than she thinks she's there. Right. And the, the then the decision has to be made. Do I do this? I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I have no career. Everybody knows this guy. He can open up doors for me. What do I do? And it, it's that moment. It's in those those flashes of, of, of moments where you morality is, it, you know, it questioned uh, your strength is questioned. It's a before and after moment. And and. Some women submit even though they don't want to. It doesn't make them immoral, but they they live to regret it. They beat themselves up. It's just it can be so hard. And the fact that you walked and you stood up for your beliefs and almost nobody knows who Al Cap is and everyone knows who Goldie Hawn is, is the best end to that story. All right. Hold on. Stand by much, much more with the one and only Goldie Hawn after this. with us today, actress, producer, mother, and mental health advocate, Goldie Hawn, also happens to be an Academy Award winner. I love the story, by the way, of that. You won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, like 1970, right? It was early in your career, and you you weren't there. You didn't show? I know. Well, I why not? Making- <laughs> I made a movie with Peter Sellers, and that's what I was doing. Uh, and so it was my second movie, and I was in London. And in those days, you know, they didn't let you go. I mean, it was like, you know, I, don't know. I forgot it was on. I forgot it was on. I literally <laughs> forgot the Academy Awards were on television. Okay. Oh my God. So I went to bed and I woke up by a phone call. It's like, you, you, you got it. And I said, <laughs> I got what? And they said, you got the Academy Award. And I went, oh my God. I didn't even know it was on television last night. <laughs> I mean, that was my first. First thing. <laughs> that is amazing. It was uh, 1970, right? 19, 1970, Cactus Flower, right? right. That's the one. Yeah. Matt, Walter Matthew, Matthew, Ingrid Bergman, and you. Yeah. 
That's amazing. Well, you know, I was thinking about it this week because, uh, you know, they canceled the Golden Globes and they did it. They basically live tweeted the Golden Globes this year. It's kind of imploded yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons. But what the but the New York Times podcast, The Daily, did an in-depth report on the implosion of the Golden Globes. And one of the things the entertainment reporter was saying is that apparently it's an open secret these days that you basically buy your Golden Globe. Unlike the Academy Award, it's like the producers yeah. of these films are like, sure would be nice if I guess it was back in the 80s, too, because they were talking about how Pia Zadora won for some film. and Everybody was like, Pia Zadora. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I remember that. Exactly. Because you know, she had a lot of help, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, with all respect, you know, I don't want to you know, talk ill about anyone, uh, really, unless they're horrible. I gal cap. But anyway, um, Yes. So, no, she was uh, definitely, um, what do you call it, honed and manipulated. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So I I didn't realize Uh, I mean, was that is that an open secret in Hollywood that like you kind of buy your Golden Globe, but you earn your Academy Award or no? You know, I can't. The Golden Globes are really an interesting group. Okay, they're they're, you know, sort of reporters or people that a liaison with every country. And um, they're they're quite a quite a group of people, right? And I, I as the time went on, and I'd make these movies, and you see them every year, you know, you get to know them, right? You get to know, oh hi, how are you, and whatever. And it's actually, in many ways, it, back in the day, I you know I like people, you know, it's like, well, who was that thing that Judy what what said was um, uh, in, was it in First Wives Club or? Well, no, that was the other. I like people and people like me. She said, oh, so this is um, basically why I don't look at them with such a scance. OK, mm-hmm. um, I have nice relationships with them, meaning that they were the always happy. Press. They're These are the ones who make the decisions. Yeah. yeah. And then the, how they just come to their decisions oftentimes is because they just like somebody so much. Uh, or because, you know, but paid off and in such a way, you know, I, that I don't know. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I, I don't know what you pay the money to do this or people take money to, I know they're bribed. I mean, I, 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 I hear that, but you know, a lot of talk is talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't put a lot into it. Um, now the golden globes are, you know, they're not, are they going to come back? I don't even know. I mean, it's unclear. You know, it's like they, they had basically a lot of problems, one of which was they didn't have enough minority players and then they got minority players and yeah. then they didn't have enough minority players. And then, you know, they're sort of trying to fix their diversity, equity and inclusion problem. And until they do, NBC is not going to put them on the I don't know. I don't follow it that closely. I just didn't. Yeah, the, yeah. That, that's equity and inclusion. That was you've a, never a, needed. You've never needed the Golden Globe to, to get movie roles. You're, it's like. You can I guess you can get ahead in your career by saying, look, I won this Oscar. I won this Oscar. Or you can just be amazing film after film and you keep getting hired. That's how you've done it. Yeah, I I had a weird career. I mean, it it really was. I didn't make a lot of movies uh, and I made movies that really were um, I produced. Now, you know, I just made a decision to produce movies. I thought, you know, I'm not going to wait around for the phone to ring. Uh, uh, I'm an odd character. I'm not like everybody else. I knew that Um, her comedy or my comedy or whatever was very, you know, my own. Uh, And also people don't think you can transcend an image. In other words, I had a very strong image, still do. Um, And and that image was... uh, 
was part of the movie, but a lot of directors like to get an actor who didn't have so much baggage, you know, who didn't, you know, everybody knew them a certain way, a big personality or, or whatever. In spite of that, I did really well, but I had um, my own production company. So, you know, you talk about what leads you, what guides you, what drives you. Um, what drove me was very practical. And I thought, let me just make my own movies. Let's make deals at, at, at Warner Brothers and, you know, and, and, and Universal and, and all the places that I was and make a deal, make movies. Right. Mm-hmm. So I made movies that even were not with me. They weren't. They were for Julie Roberts and Steve Martin and uh, different movies. Right. But I got to do movies that matter to me, meaning. Am I going to do a movie about a girl in the army? Am I going to make a movie about a woman who is a a football coach? Am I going to make a movie about protocol, someone who basically blows up Washington and the lies and comes up and speaks in front of the Senate? I like to make movies that actually mattered. And for me, that was the most exciting part of being in the movie industry. Mm -hmm. And so, so... you know, By the way, those me, are all three great movies. Protocol was hilarious. Um, Wildcats uh, loved it, of course. That's the you and the football team. And uh, Private <laughs> Benjamin was like, my mother fell in love with you before I fell in love with you. You she used to run around the house quoting you in Private Benjamin. I want to go out to lunch. I want to. <laughs> and for those of you who are, who don't know Private Benjamin and want to want to be reintroduced to it or be introduced the first time, here's just a little clip. Uh, this is Soundbite Six. Uh-huh. I hate to interrupt you, but um, could I speak to you oh, for a sec? Oh, my lord, Sergeant, would you look at this? I've seen it, ma'am. <laughs> what's, what's your name, Princess? Huh? Judy. Judy. Mm-hmm. Judy Benjamin. Judy Benjamin. Um, <clears throat> I think they sent me to the wrong place. Uh-huh. See, uh, I did join the army, but I joined a different army. Uh, I joined the one with the condos and the private rooms. <laughs> no, really, my, my, my recruiter, Jim Ballard, told me I don't me care. That... I don't care what your lousy recruiter told you, Benjamin. Now, I'm telling you, there is no other army. Wait a minute. I don't want to have to go to your boss or anything, okay? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you can't do it without great writing. You just can't do it. I mean, the writers are everything. And, you know, they give you basically the words, you know, and you can interpret them how you want, but they're damn funny. And, you know, that's what they they did. Nancy Myers and Chuck Shire and Harvey Miller. They they were amazing. So that but that was the one that like that you produced that your name was the only name above the title. Not not no man's name. You know, you proved a woman can carry a film because that film was hugely successful and it was yours on a number of levels. Um, let me pay one more bill. Sorry, it's annoying, but that's how we stay on the air. And uh, then we'll come back and we'll pick it up with the, maybe some of the fallout from Private Benjamin. I didn't realize that it was a double edged sword till I studied up for today. Stand by for more of with Goldie Hawn. And don't forget, folks, you can find The Megan Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. The full video show and clips by subscribing to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. Or uh, if you prefer the audio version, just Get a podcast and, de- and subscribe it uh, by downloading our show on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast for free. I'm going to pick it up with Private Benjamin Goldie because 
That was yeah. a huge success for you. You were the producer. You were the star. Everybody loved it. But I know you, you've you said it turned out to be a double-edged sword, your success on that movie. How so? Because I, I, I know I produced it, but I also worked with Pete, with the writers and so forth. So, you know, the only reason I produced it was because I said, why do we need another producer? I mean, we don't need one. I've been producing before at, at Universal. And, you know, you get your producer that works on the show and you're working with your thing. And it's just fine. You know, why pay someone else, basically, a big producer to take over? Because, you know, this was a financial, practical decision. In the meantime, big hit, cover of whatever, everything's thing. And then next thing I know, I it was so such a hit, I guess, that I had, you know, directors really didn't want to work with me because they felt that I would only do my own things and that I took over and that I was, it was sort of, it had to be my way. There was some fear around a woman being successful and, and being a bitch. And, and I wasn't at all, not even close. I mean, <clears throat> there were many of us that made that movie great, not just me. And I'm just looking at, you know, at that time, you know, there was a serious glass ceiling. And, and when I broke a record or whatever you call it, I mean, I don't know, I made a movie that made, was successful and I was happened to be a person in it that, you know, made, made it more successful. Like she was funny um, and whatever. But point is, is that I remember even one of my dear friends who I was, who was a dancer and a friend of my mom's, her, her boss, um, he heard that I, you know, took over and I wanted to do everything my own way. Thinking, oh my God, who made that up? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, trying to save a movie. Yeah, Private Benjamin had like, you know, three laughs in it on the first edit. I mean, it was, a, we, we had issues, but we have the most amazing writers and they, they sat down and they did 135, I think, notes, uh, editing notes, and they were followed because we were producing and, and, and they changed the whole movie around to make it as funny as it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think th- there's a, a whole viewpoint of women at that point in power. Um, and it was, you know, extremely male dominated, extremely. So it's so crazy that somebody uh, like you, who is obviously warm, friendly, kind, that no one would ever look at you and suspect bitch, uh, you know, that, no, that if they can do that no. to you, they could do it to anybody. Yeah, it, it wasn't about me, really. It was about the, you know, the culture. And, uh, you know, I was part of the of that culture. Uh, and slowly it changed, which it has to a point. But I remember uh, with my daughter, we, we went, Katie and I, she was just starting. And the two of us were at Women's Lunch. What was it? Women's Film for uh, Women for Film or something. Um, and uh, it was a thing that they created, you know, and like the powerful women. And now we had certain women in, in positions of power. And, you know, it was great. And it was like the women in film, women in film. And um, I got the giggles. It was just so crazy. <laughs> Katie and I are, you know, in the podium and we're looking around and I'm looking around at all these women and I got the giggles because it didn't matter. These women were working for men and there were still no women's movies being made, Mm -hmm. including First Wives Club. We all took a a less money, certain amount of money because they were scared that women a certain age and we weren't even that old then, but a woman of a certain age couldn't bring in, you know, box office dollars. And we went out and made this movie and it was a huge hit. Cover of Time Magazine. Oh, wow. 
Then you go to make it another one, a sequel, and they don't want to pay you any more money. Oh, wow. Shocking. Shocking. And that was for his wife's company. Now it was 25, so whatever years ago, 30. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the reality is, is that the fighting of this, you know, idea that a woman cannot really carry a, a movie or that they can't make money, you know, in the industry mm. is Guess sort again. of because the money that they make are all these other big tentpole movies, which aren't really about a star. You know, they're about special effects. They're about, you know, all these big movies. And they're most of them, at least back in then, were very male oriented. Mm. So young boys would go to the theater. They would go to see them. So, you know, but my point is, as we're getting to, is that women have had a, an interesting hill to climb. Sometimes well, I mean, and, and in, in a lot of industries, but especially Hollywood, which is one of the crazy pieces of I think it's why it drives people crazy when Hollywood tries to act holier than thou and start lecturing middle America about morality and so on. And, you know, these people sitting in Iowa who have never done any, they've never tried to put somebody at a casting couch or do what, you know, Al did or any of this. They're like, I, you could save your lectures for somebody else. That's right. Exactly. Uh, the, the idea that, you know, well, I, I do have a feeling about keep your, keep up. Uh, I've never known, okay, how do I say this? Hollywood and a lot of Hollywood has a lot of mission, right? And, you know, you want to put your name onto something that you believe in, but it doesn't make a difference. And that's the, one, the reality is that if you are someone in the, in the industry and you want to go into politics or you want to talk about these things, you know, I, I stay in my lane. And, and I think that the idea, if, if, if you know, it's maybe segueing into what I'm doing now, but the reality is, is that if we want to do anything, we want to do it for all people, not mm-hmm. just for a group or whatever. What makes polarity even more is creating teams on either side of the, of the aisle. And I don't think that's what we do. I think we entertain. I think we bring awareness to people just of their ability to laugh to have joy, to experience it, to cry. We, we are emotional beings and create emotion and, and in others. And, and it's an escape. I think we're in service. I really do. I think yes. people would get paid really well to be in service. But I don't think that we should forget that our first job is to help people laugh, feel something, escape. Amen. All right. Now, that's a great note on which to leave it. And when we come back, Goldie's latest effort to bring that kind of messaging to your kids, my kids and the world in a really creative way. Don't go away. Academy Award winning actress and mental health advocate Goldie Hawn is my guest today. She just launched the digital platform of her nonprofit, Mind Up to help children and really everyone find the tools to deal with anxiety, stress, and depression. So Goldie, we talked a couple of years ago about your program. The Mind Up didn't just launch, but you've just gotten this great big online uh, platform that helps people navigate their way through it. And can I just set this Mm -hmm. up with some stats? Um, We talked about one of these earlier this week, but the CDC says suicide attempts um, during the pandemic have jumped 51% for girls. 51%. 51%. It's about just under 4% for boys, so less for boys, uh, but still up. 
Um, Israel just did a big study of 200,000 boys and girls between the ages of 12 and 17. This is, again, taking a look at during the pandemic. And they report that there's been a 55% rise in eating disorders, a 38% rise in diagnosis of depression, 33% rise in anxiety disorders, ER visits for mental health issues for teens are going through the roof around the world, and especially in the United States. And you actually have a program that can help parents do something about it. They can do it from their living room. They can do it in the classroom. But it provides real tools for schools and families in dealing with some of these issues. How so? Well, you know, this was something I started like 20 years ago, and I did it because of 9-11. And my issues around the fear that I had of the atom bomb. I thought I was going to die before I ever got to kiss a boy. I mean, I was really scared. I was, I really remember, I really thought at that point about my mortality. Um, and it created a lot of anxiety for me. And during 9-11, I realized that children all over were going to be, in America in particular, were going to be showing symptoms because fear is a, is a, is a dangerous thing. It's quite poisonous. And it turns into anger and all kinds of like side effects. So I started looking then into the problems of suicide and uh, anxiety and uh, all kinds of different you know issues around children's mental stability. Uh, and and I was shocked. And that was in you know 2003. Uh, it was an uptick in suicide for children, young children, 10 years to 15 years, and then of older kids was a second leading cause of death. I, I, I really was shocked. It, it knocked me out. It gobsmacked me. I, I thought, oh, my God, something has to happen. So after all the world that I have done over the years, which is psychology, which is meditation, which are ways and means to create a sense of happiness or more well-being, I learned sort of what the causes of happiness were. And I started applying them in a TV show. I wanted to do a documentary on joy. That's when 9-11 happened. So the, my background really went how am I going to use what I know? So I brought in neuroscientists. I brought in psychologists, positive psychologists, teachers and practitioners, right, who met, were in meditation and also, also research scientists in order to put these things together to create a holistic approach to a classroom program. And I felt that putting it in the classroom then would begin to mitigate some of the issues around their fear, around anxiety, by knowing their brain. So it's based in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. You know, it was never based as a basically a, a program about mindfulness or meditation. I mean, what? yes, we do three times a day, we do a brain break. But a brain break is to give a brain a break. These children know that they get anxious, they get scared, they get angry, there's aggression. They know that maybe they need to take a brain break. That's a three minute moment of listening to a sound and then breath and using your breath and learning to breathe properly. And it's been incredibly helpful. So teaching the brain is not just to know about the biology of your brain. It's to know how to use your brain. How do I change the way I'm thinking? How do I change my environment? When they realize that their brain, that they have there is not like anybody else's it's their brain and they own it then they get to know that they can actually not just shake hands with it as a friend but they can actually change the way things are happening Mm. so that's why they learn to breathe and they learn to focus that's how they learn when we have the happiness of uh, giving of um, 
kindness, you know, and also uh, gratitude journaling, things yeah. where it happens in the classroom sounds like a lightweight thing. It's not. It changes the neurons and how they fire. And when you start building small children whose brains are actually developing, you're helping them develop brain fitness. And that's what we want. We want resilience. We want children to be caring of each other, aware. They want kids to be self-aware so they know that if they do something this way, it might have a repercussion another way. Create critical thinking where they're thinking critically about whether to do something or not or how to solve a problem. I mean, it's an, an amazing simple way of learning how to manage your own brain and your own outcome, therefore your own reality. Mm -hmm. So this happened how many years ago, right? And I've been putting teachers in classrooms and I'm putting the program, whatever, and it's been great. But the scaling of it is hard because you can't fly people here and do this there or create trainers here because you can't really manage the trainers in the same way you need to. It's important on how it's delivered, right? So what we did, did was when, co when COVID happened, part of what happened to me, we talked about earlier, of ba basically sitting down, is that I had the dream and I was able to dream in quiet. I was able to quiet my mind, my stress level, my body, my movement places, take my distracting my brain. And I figured out how to redo and reimagine what mind up is. And so that's what my what the what COVID helped me do. Mm. So now we have created various amazing people online accessibility on our learning platform. So any teacher of any school can go ahead and get that program just as it's taught. And it's beautiful to look at. We, we, I didn't want the program to look at like pedagogy or anything a teacher would have to do again. It's all written. It's there, but it's beautiful. It has sound. It's, it's pretty to look at. It feels good to be in that space is what I wanted it to look like. In the meantime, you can take that program, become a credited a trainer and go in there and teach your children. Schools have already bought the program uh, alone, along with other teachers similarly. But then I decided we've got to put a parent program in here. Yeah. This isn't just for children. So now, well, now we're building, we built part of it of a really in-depth parent program of learning how their brains work and knowing that until they are a little more mindful themselves, they will be able to be a better parent. You know, we're hijacked by our anger and our fear and lack of knowledge of what's happening in the future. Our money, look, we're in a, in a, in a basically a recession, right? Or in, um, not recession, in a, um, help me out. Well, we're in a massive inflationary period. And uh, while we've filled a lot of jobs, a lot of people have left the workforce altogether. Exactly. So we, we the inflation. So that was the so the, the reality is, is that we've got a lot to worry about, right? But in what we teach and what we're helping them with is to actually stay right here, right now, and understand that this moment right now is the most important moment. And mm -hmm. they understand now about their children, their children's brains, their brains. They have discussions around it. They're able to work with families. We have mind up family. So what happened is, is Megan, is that I have taken this and now it's grown into a library of, of people talking about these various things. Um, we've got, you know, happiness experts, we've got researchers, we've got neuroscientists, 
scientists talking about what is mindfulness, what happens to the brain, what's going on when you quiet your mind is powerful. We're going to have doctors, food, food, the best food for your mind, the best food for your children. And we're, we have a, a cardiologist now speaking about the brain and breath and the heart and that connection and how it heals your heart physically. So we, we, I've just opened up a world that literally I believe that we need to all understand about the potential of who we are and how we can change our mindset, how we can be a better partner, how we can literally have more tolerance and more love. And more can, listening capability. Can I so tell you that? Um, they, I, well, just to pick up on what you're saying, the, I, there, there's a line of sweatshirts and T-shirts and so on, and it reads, um, "Choose happiness." And to me, that's never spoken to me because if if, if it were that easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> it's it's not that right. easy. So I like what yeah. you said about brain fitness. If if you have somebody who's trained their brain to to be negative, to see the darkness, to stay mired in anxiety and worries about the future and depression. And they don't know how to sort of reset that. They can't choose right. anything other. You're talking about yeah. training the brain the same way you train a muscle to, to do something different that would be better for it to understand how to process some of those feelings, get a handle on right. them, maybe table them, right? So stay in the moment, as you're saying, so that yeah. happiness is just more frequent in your life. It's not about having to choose it. It's just you've set your brain up to put yourself there. Perfect. Perfectly put. Because it is you. Do we choose happiness? Of course, everyone wants to be happy. What do you want for your children? I want them mostly to be happy right? We get it. But but we have to set our brain up. We have to have foundational material to understand that we can't just be happy because we say we want to be happy. We have to understand how to. We look at the causes of happiness. One of the causes of happiness is a very together, bound together, loving family. Mm -hmm. That is one of the big causes of happiness. That other thing is a cause of happiness is giving. Caring about someone else, the idea of doing something which is acts of kindness sounds crazy, but that actually makes you feel better. Hang out with happy people. Why? Because there is a thing called emotional contagion and emotional contagion is real. Whether I mean, we're experiencing it today. You know, people are angry. Hang out with them, you're going to be angry. It's what happens. We're just humans. Our brain has this mirror neurons and it starts to process in the brain and we get it. You hang out with happy people, you'll be happier. You hang out with people who aren't watching their weight as well and not taking. Sometimes you'll actually put on a few pounds. It's weird, but we actually, if you want to be happy, there are actions to take. There's things to learn about the causes of happiness. One of them is movement. Movement, real movement, you know, go out there, be with a friend, hike, take a walk, breath, breath is another one. So when we learn all these causes to have a more, I would say, a more generous life, a feeling that you know, there's more abundance in your life than deficit, that's the way to do it. We have a brain that we can train, but just by wanting to be something does not mean you're going to get there. Mm. You've got to work. And I think that's ultimately what you said. And that's what we train. So in a child's classroom, which we are, we're preschool through eighth grade right now. And I'm doing it because that's a developing brain. And they learn. 85% of our kids said reportedly they now felt they could make themselves feel happier. 
Well, that's you know, amazing. I have to tell you, that was huge for me. I just made it, it, it really did. It made me emotional because mm-hmm. if those kids today could figure out that if you could do this in every grade till you're in eighth grade, you'll ride that bike for the rest of your life. That will never, ever go away. You will, will you- always remember. On the website, you have tips for parents that I was like, this is actually quite clever. It seems simple, but it's quite clever. One of them that stood out to me was every night at the dinner table, ask your child, uh, what was something good that happened today? As opposed to what what most of us do, which is just, you know, what happened today? Tell me about your day. Like what, yeah. what was interesting? Usually I've come at it from sort of a neutral standpoint or just an information seeking standpoint. But the point is, you're helping them train to go to something positive, something for which they might have gratitude, right? So it's like right. a it's a practice that you can get your child into night after night. Exactly right. You know, my dad used to call me and he'd say, what good happened today? Oh, and daddy, wow. I'd call daddy when I was like dancing in New York or whatever. And he'd say, and then he'd say to me, okay, go. What did you, what, what is the one thing you learned today? Did you just tell me what you learned today? Just one thing. And, you know, it's lived with me. I mean, I'm an older person now, <laughs> but Aww. it still lives with me. I mean, I remember, what did I learn new today? And I can I can remember myself all through the days. I can say, well, I learned something new today. That was great. These are positive experiences. Here's the deal. The brain is negative biased, no matter what. And it's negative bias because it's it, it's there. The brain is there. It's a very primitive part of our brain, but it's there to look for trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the amygdala. That's the center brain, right? That's the area where we are. Our smell. Oh, I smell gas. Oh, I do this. Oh, you know, one of the little kids was seven years old and her, niece, her aunt pulled her away from the, of the curb. And she said, Auntie, do you know what saved our lives? And she said, no. And she said, the, the amygdala. Her her, her aunt said, What? (laughs) Me. But she said, No, because that saves that saves our life because that was an alert. We knew. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this was a seven-year-old telling, okay, this is me hearing this story from in, in Vancouver. So the reality is, is that learning what we naturally go to, which is the negative story. And you find yourself doing that negative story. You wake up in the morning, you're lying in bed, you're thinking about what happened a year ago or 10 years ago or whatever. Why is that happening? That's what the brain's doing. It's shifting. It's bringing stuff up. Don't even think about it. Just get out of bed. You, you change the subject. You don't have to you know, sort of go over and over and over this thing that your husband did or your boyfriend or back in the day, or, you know, you're holding grudges, your brain won't let you forget it. You have to talk to your brain and say, stop it. I'm getting out of bed. I am not thinking about this anymore because it's gone. It's over. Today is today. It's now. And damn it, if we don't live for where we are right now, if this pandemic didn't teach us that we can't depend on a lot of things, including this frigging virus that's running around here. But we can find the things that we depend upon. And we can have a a, a nurtured heart. We can go in and sit quietly and think of the beautiful things that have happened to you. And look at your children every day. So you can't, so 
you can't right so we, you can't just say okay be happy right you can't do that you, but you can practice mindfulness you can practice it's basically cognitive behavioral therapy you're talking about when you you got the yeah. thing the bad thought in your head over and over and over and you just choose yeah. to just redirect for the moment i've always I said i used to this moment i use my my old puppy's face little bosch's face it was so sweet for me it's just a good it's like a rejiggering you know like bosch's face it'll just stop the thinking of whatever <laughs> i need to stop it works but but i wanted to ask you this is a this is a sensitive subject so forgive me but i do i do think it's helpful something bad happened to you when you were a child um with respect to a, an a, attempted sexual assault and yes. I, you told me this over dinner one time. It's never left me. But the way your mom handled it with you, I thought was brilliant. And I'm sure some people would find it controversial. I thought it was brilliant because in a way, Goldie, she was training you this, you know, from a very early age. Right. That's exactly right. You're, you're 100 percent right. Is that I had a uh, one of my sister's friends and they were like 18 in that age. And I went to school. It was Christmas time and we were having a party and he came up stairs and I knew him, you know, I was 11. And the next thing I know, I wake up and he has his hands on my breasts. Um, and then he puts his hand on my vagina area. And, and I said, Ted, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, what, what are you doing? I'm trying to push his hands away. And I said, stop it. And then I just stopped. I said, call my mom. I called mommy. And I called her from, I didn't get up because I was in bed. He was holding me down <clears throat> a little bit because then he left. And my mother ran upstairs and they, you know, somebody went to get him. They ran out the door. I said, my, here's what he did. And he touched me here and he did this. And my mom looked at me and she said, okay, look at me. Are you okay? Are you, are you okay? And I said, I am. She said, well, how? all right, so just so you know, I want you to know something. All right, he's very sick. He's a very sick boy. So if you're okay and whatever, and you're not hurt and everything's fine, don't, don't worry. I'm right here. But I, I didn't know. No, she didn't go, oh, what happened to my daughter? What, what, you know, uh, uh, how are you? How are you? I mean, no, no, no. She just said, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay? And suddenly, again, contagion, okay? Mom didn't, wasn't upset. Yes. I wasn't upset. I learned that he wasn't well. I had Owens, Ralph went and Ralph went and well, chased him out. He left the house. She said, so he's a very sick boy. So, you know, but so I didn't have this like woman who lost her shit, you know? Yeah, she, she gave just, you the file to put this in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it's very interesting when you talk about the outcaps of the world. Uh, and by the way, he wasn't the only one. Um, you really, you know, I danced in Vegas. So, you know, it's a whole other story. Um, but, you know, in a way, I had more empathy for them. I, I felt like they, they, there's a weakness there. And, and, and I, I felt bad. There's a, you know, whether they're addicted to sex, it's a terrible thing to have that hormone running through your your body and not being able to handle it not deal with it not know what to do um so i you know i know it sounds crazy but i i forgive them and and you know i i kind of i care about about them because I think they that, have but 
that that may be a bridge too far for for many people but i but i think people can get into the habit of not catastrophizing every bad thing that happens and this was by any measure a bad thing that happened and your mother right. absolutely could have said oh my god and held you and started rocking and saying yeah. you'll never be the same your relationship with men will not be the same you know we're gonna have to get you in immediate therapy and it and that could have created further scarring i do think the way she chose to handle it and and already the child she built till 11 years, you know, who she, who she was dealing with, thanks to all those years of input, she was able to sort of say, this is the file it goes in. It's about him, not about you. You're fine. And I know you've said it did not negatively impact your view of or relationship or sexual relationships with men at any point thereafter. No, not at all. I mean, I will. They, I, but, but as you say, you're not whatever that was an early experience um and i remember back when i was also uh, at a bar with my girlfriend and it was over and he locked the door and my girlfriend was in the other place next door she wasn't there and this guy who was a really nice guy and he threw me down on the banquette in this place and and it was they served food and everything so it wasn't and and he, he started to you know pound on me not hurt, hurt me but he wanted to you know have, make sex with me or something and 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 i was lying there now about my you, I was a, a ballet dancer. So I was, I was strong. I had very strong legs. I, you know, I wasn't wimpy. Right. Mm. In the meantime, as a cop came from Washington, DC, I looked at the window. He looked down because he heard me yelling and he, and the guy put his hand over my mouth. I got out from under him and I, I r- ripped out from under him, my leg, I pushed him. I, I got out and I ran into the kitchen and I, I got a knife. And I, I held it up and I said, don't touch me. Wow. And he started to cry. And he said, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened to me. I'm so sorry. Now, I look at that experience and I still feel bad for him. Wow. Because, because I, I, I wasn't hurt. I knew I knew it was wrong with him. He, he redeemed himself, obviously. So I didn't have one of those horrible experiences. Okay. So I'm not saying, yeah. you know no, what I'm I saying? That I was. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could it, it's gone but, a different but, way for too many people. It's gone a different way for too many people. You bet. I mean, so, but it's an experience. And, and I, I think that it's an element of, if we can't have a deeper understanding of human behavior, forget killing, forget full on rape, forget all these things, mm-hmm. but with your, your husbands, your children, your loved ones, the people that are in your life, people, strangers that aren't nice, things that you can see. If we don't feel empathy, a sense of empathy for someone else, I don't know if life is worth living. Mm. I really don't. I think caring for something, caring about something is really, really what you, you have in life. And it brings great happiness and great joy. And this thing that I'm doing with Mind Up, Mind Up for Life, brings me so much joy because I'm ultimately doing something at this time in my life that I care about, building human capacity, human capital, to be able to say one day, maybe this will be in every school in the world. 27 countries have already come to our site. Maybe we 
Uh, you said it. It's around the world, this problem. We've got to build a healthier world, a world where people actually experience what it is, all the joys of being human, not just being angry, not having to win, not be somebody who has to you know, weigh this against that. Understand that. Try and understand that. And when you do, you realize there's actually more congeniality where we actually understand we don't always think the same way. And we talk about this in the classroom. So I just think we have to build better capital. We are there. I'm sappy to do it. I may sound like a Pollyanna, sweetheart. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm not. I, I'm very scrutinizing. Um, but but I'm resilient. And you know, people aren't going to push me over that easily. And, and but I, I, I think, think it's that- a good reminder that there there is a soft, safe, loving place that everyone can go to on their own, within their own head. You don't need a room called a safe room. You don't need speech labeled safe. You are in charge of the safety of your own body, your own mind, and whether you are okay, whether you can handle the anxiety or the stress brought on by anybody's words or behavior, whatever it is, you are in charge of how you're gonna react to that. And if you don't have the tools, they are gettable. They're gettable, they're learnable. They definitely are. I love, I love, uh, thank you. No wonder I, we have dinner one night. We get together. I just adore you. It's like, come on, you can do it. It's, it's not like, this, it's the tequila, but this is also good. <laughs> All right, wait, let's, let's, let's squeeze in a quick break uh, because I want to talk to you about what else you're doing now. Um, and just a, a, a couple of fun moments because you know I'm not letting you leave without talking about Overboard. One of the greatest films of all time. It's like the Godfather, <laughs> Overboard, Willy Wonka. We'll be right back with the one and only Goldie Hawn. Your list of movies, it's too, it's crazy. I just went back and was looking like, I, I've seen all of these. Seems like old times. Talk about Private Vengeance. Swing Shift, I love. That's where you and Kurt Russell met. Um, and, and it goes on and on. Here's just a couple for people who need a refresher like I did. Uh We'll get to Overboard in a second. First Wives Club, Everyone Says I Love You. That was the Woody Allen film, 1996, same year. Protocol, Wildcats, Bird on a Wire, House Sitter, Death Becomes Her, The Out-of-Towners, Town and Country. Uh, I could go on. First Wives Club is, I hear, possibly making a sequel, so we'll see about that. But let's get to the main event, okay? Let's talk of, Let's talk Turkey. Overboard. 1987. I just learned in preparing for this interview, it was based on a real story. There was an actual woman who fell off a boat or showed up on a Florida shore with amnesia. And in the movie, which was apparently written with you and Kurt in mind, um, the, the premise is that the woman, your character, falls off of her yacht after being a real jerk to Kurt Russell's carpenter character. And he decides yeah. after she threw all of his carpentry to- to- tools in the water that he's going to go claim this woman at the hospital and convince her that they're married and put her to work for him until she works off all the money she threw into the water. It's so funny. You could never make this film today, by the way. You'd get hit for you know, not appropriate, P- not PC, whatever. So um, you couldn't make a lot of them today. You couldn't make any of them? A lot of them, you know. Yeah. I mean, when you look at some of the films and the way they were and what they, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, things have changed tremendously. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it has affected comedy uh, quite a bit. Uh, this, you know, basically being, you know, uh, you know, basically politically correct and mm-hmm. so forth, um, because they, their jokes were oftentimes made, you know, on all these different things that, you know, were sort of uh, liabilities. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, you know, they, I know there's a lot of comics. I mean, it's sort of like they, you know, even when they go into universities, there's a lot of sensitivity to uh, all kinds of stuff. So it's really interesting to be a stand-up comic or understand what your subject matters could actually be without offending someone. That's got to be so, so we're, annoying we're to you. You spent a whole career trying to make people laugh, like having to worry yeah. about the third rail. You're supposed to step on the third rails if you're trying to make people laugh. You're, start, you're supposed to start on what? You're supposed to step, step on the third on. rails. You're supposed to sort of poke the things that normal people oh, yeah. wouldn't poke. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. I mean, Don Rickles, you know, was a killer on that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that, that's sort of, you know, what you do. I mean, it was it was kind of like that, you know. Um, I mean, I don't know. I remember one line I did on in Wildcat. And, you know, I told I told him off and, you know, I was really upset with him. And this was um, Nipsey Russell. And and I was like, really this. And I left there and I hot it up and I came back and I said, I forgot my purse. So and and she went back, you know, now today that would be a moment, which is it was funny, but mm-hmm. it's now it's sort of like, oh, you're just I'm, uh, down, d- down deep. I'm just a, a, a crazy female, you know, mm-hmm. Um so uh, there's a, a lot of areas that maybe not, would not have been not. Well, you've, not been, have you've been getting gut for doing this kind of thing for a, a long time. I understand when you you did laugh in, that was sort of your first big, big thing. I mean, laugh in back in the late 60s was I mean, everybody watched it. It was like one in four Americans was watching laugh in, which was on Monday nights. Everybody watched yeah. it. That's where she like became a huge star. And then your movie career launched right after that. But. I read that when you were doing that, because you, you sort of played up sort of the the dumb blonde character in a funny way. And um, I read that sort of the women's lib advocates kind of gave you a hard time saying, what are you doing? You know, you're setting women back and you were like, well, I don't think we need to burn our bras necessarily to get ahead. Like I'm kind of living the women's lib thing by paying my bills and working as an actress. I don't like, is that true? What I said to her was this. She said, well, what about women's liberation? Uh, And don't you feel bad because, you know, you're basically showing off as a dumb blonde. I said, really? I said, you know, I'm already liberated. And she looked at me like, "Uh, what do you mean? I said, well, liberation comes from the inside. And I'm liberated. (laughs) <laughs> and she, it was, it, it was one of those moments really where I didn't even know what I was going to say. You know, sometimes when people ask you questions and you're thinking, you know, and it just comes out. Yeah. You know, and it just came out is that, you know, I, well, I don't know what you're saying because I'm experiencing liberation right now. Well, you would go on to live a life that showed it. I mean, I think that some of the stuff we're talking about producing the movie instead of just starring in it at a time when not a lot of women were doing that and standing up for yourself and not submitting and so on, taking a lot of bullshit from men. Um, so you navigate yourself to a place where you can do a movie like Overboard. <laughs> you yeah, were well, newly, exactly. I mean, in really, that, that was a great role, by the way. And I was also looking at wonderful roles. I mean, it, she was, first of all, it, we did the movie, you know, where I played um, Annie first. I didn't, oh. we didn't put it in, in, in order. No, Joanna we, was the rich bitch version of you. And Annie yeah. was like the one he said, no, Annie's my wife. You do all the cleaning, it, Annie. Exactly. So she was the one that I had to know who I was so I could play who I didn't know I was. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> so it was, a, it was quite a challenge to tell you the truth. There, uh, the, you know, One of the scenes I love the most, Goldie, is where yeah. you're, you're, 
you've had it. You know, this woman who's really Joanna, who's being told she's Annie and a housewife who does all the chores, knows at some level that this isn't the right fit. And he dumps you in this like sort of water barrel out in the front of the house. And we have a clip in which you channel my every thought when I pick up a mop. Here she goes. Listen. Come on, guys. Feel better? I don't belong here. I feel it. Don't you think I feel it? I can't do any of these vile things, and I wouldn't want to. My life is like death. My children are the spawn of hell, and you're the devil. Oh, God. (laughs) Baby, we like you. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, it, it, it... I haven't seen that in a long time. I mean, that's so like good. That. I can't do oh, any of these vile things that I wouldn't oh. want to. <laughs> my children are the spawns of hell. <laughs> You're the devil. Oh my God. I mean, there are things in that film. There were, there were, it was so funny. And it also was emo- emotional because when she came out and said, I, how could you, you know, how could you do this? Mm, when, she lear- when she learns that he's been duping her because they do f- fall for each other. And then she learns he's been lying to her. Exactly. And then my real husband comes back in his limo and the kids were devastated. And I was, I just didn't know what to, to do. Mm. I remembered who I was finally. And, and it was like, oh my God. Now, in the middle of a movie that is hilarious, right? That was a very dramatic moment. Mm. And when she got in the car, the kids running after her, that was so sad. So a movie where you can cry, laugh, um, you know, just have a lot of uh, emotions to it. Um, we're, we're really extraordinarily lucky to be able to play. Yeah. Um, the end of the movie was one of my favorite endings because when we jumped in the water because we we were pining for each other he was looking for i was looking for him and we dove in the water together in the in the sea to get together the end of it after they're all bundled up he says what can i give you that you don't already have because she had the money and she looked at him and said a baby baby girl girl. yeah kind of like oh perfect line but you so, guys were the key the writer of the film is it uh leslie dixon leslie dixon and okay. and and then there was writing from every you know everybody harvey okay. wrote some stuff and you know we we were we worked on it together it was, well so she yeah. says she gives you guys all the credit she's like kurt and goldie are the cutest people on the face of the earth. She goes, I don't say that to be diminishing. She goes, it's just a fact. Everyone loves them. The chemistry was palpable. You guys had met a few years earlier on the set of Swing Shift, which I also really enjoyed. Um, And you could feel it. And then you had a new baby, Wyatt, Wyatt of now, like who's now like Captain America. (laughs) Um, 
he, I just learned today he was running around the set. He was one of the kids in one of the outdoor go- mini golf scenes. He was nine months old. Oh my gosh. I was wow. nine months old. And my nanny was holding him in the scene. Aww. So he was just one of the, uh, the, the extras, right? <laughs> it was meant to be. And, so he's like a baby on the movie set and still is on one. Right. And he took his first steps on that movie. Wow. I don't know. What do you, so, why do you think that movie has withstood the test of time? You know, because not every movie made in 1987. Like Moonstruck, that was an amazing film. I think it may have come out that year. People aren't still watching it. It's still not on television all the time. So why is I, Overboard doing that? Well, I think Overboard is a general um, uh, it's a relationship movie, first of all. It's about people falling in love. It's a, an amazing premise. If you didn't know who you were, who would you be? Uh, it's also about when you it's also about love. Um, when you think you can't fall in love, it changes you. And it's also good for blended families to see is that sometimes when they don't know who their mother is or they don't have a mom anymore, a new person coming into the household doesn't mean that it's going to fall apart. Sometimes it means that they're going to have a great time. A lot of doctors use this movie for blended families oh, to wow. show them. And uh, so it, 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 it has tremendous ability to make people feel. And it has nothing to do with time. That's why it's so timeless. It's that it's really about, about humor, but how people get along and how to get along. Um, and, you know, it was emotional. I mean, when she wakes up and says, but when she had, you know, all that, you know, she was had, um, she said, I'm so ugly. I mean, this is where she had, you know, it's. She it's had poison all, oak. Exactly. Yeah. You know. No, it was great when she came out. She, he was telling all these stories about her past, that she was in the Navy and that she had, she used to be really fat, which is why she had, he had only these huge house dresses for her that he got from the Salvation Army. And she goes, I was a short, fat slut. <laughs> That's right. I, I mean, really, it's just so funny, you know, and then when we're in bed together, Right. And it's sleeping. And he got me a washing machine um, for my birthday. And the kids, it's, she was so happy, mm-hmm. you know, and then he told her all about how she you know, was an employee of the month. And, and she was so happy about it, yeah. you know. And, and, and so you had this feeling you, you, you kind of hated him and you kind of knew he was falling in love with her. And she was so vulnerable to believe that I was. I was employee of the month, you know, learning about who I was and feeling good about it. Yeah, and new knowing- information for this character that she might actually be a good person, which Joanna, the other person, not would never have actually heard. And by the way, I mean, it must be said, your body was so amazing. I was like, your body looks See, so By good. the way, I had a baby. Well, he was nine months old. How is that possible? I- what were you doing? Well, you know, I guess being a dancer all your life, your your body knows the muscles know that there's they have information. And so it's like when you go back to work again or you lose weight again or you do whatever, you you kind of got to go back. Your body has memory. And I think that's what happened. What did I do? I worked out. I did a lot of things. You know, I didn't break my back. But I, I worked out. I did my sit-ups. I did my stuff. I had someone working with me. You know, I did all my weights. Of course, I did aerobic. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 
I did what I what I normally do. Um, you looked amazing. You both was, did. I, just like, I think it's muscle memory. I swear to God. You still have it. You post these little videos of you and your family during the pandemic when you got the puppy and whatever. I'm like, that bitch looks better than I am. And she is 76 now. I don't even know what you, it's like. What the hell? First of all, your body is killer. I mean, oh. you will always have that, by the way. You know, there's nothing to snap back into. No, it's very jiggly. It's not like the Goldie Hawn in Overboard. Trust me, it never has been. <laughs> you can't tell me that. It's not true. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so it's really it is nice. But you know what's interesting is we get older. Um, and I'm very, very what as you can tell, you know, I've been a dancer. I you cannot let that go. I mean, once you're three and four and five and six and seven and eight, and that's what you did danced all your life, you cannot let yourself go, right? So I you know, I went and I got. I go to places for cleanses and all that. We were just talking about that uh, this morning. And I said, you know, no matter what I do, I go to the cleansing place. It's great. I'm doing all my, the, everything we do. We do colognes, we do the scrubs, we do the massage. We don't eat. We have, you know, our, all the stuff that we do do. You know, my stomach is so flat and I'm so happy. And it takes about two weeks. What the hell cleanses this? What cleanses this? goes back again. I mean, my stomach is, oh. flat. it's not huge. It's just, all in the wrong place. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on. So, you know, so am I paying attention still? Yes. <laughs> what well, we can tell is you look amazing. And by the way, Abby, could you sign me up for dance classes immediately? Uh, <laughs> Goldie Hawn, I love you so much. Thank you so much for doing this, for doing Mind Up. And sure. the next tequilas are on me, sister. Okay, babe, you got it. Talk soon. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. It's time for another edition of Thanks But No Thanks, where we say thanks but no thanks to a trend or story bubbling up in the news. Today, we're talking about chocolate, specifically the little bite-sized chocolate candy everyone loves, M&Ms. M&Ms taste great, but they also have cute little characters from the ads. Remember them? Well, it's 2022, and everyone has lost their minds. So these cute little guys and gals are getting a woke makeover. Yes, these M&Ms you see are not empowered enough. And candy maker Mars Wrigley announced this week that they would be updated for our, quote, more dynamic, progressive world. What does that mean? Well, here's what's different now. First, that little orange guy at the end. Well, he looked nervous before, but now he's going to really, quote, embrace his true self, worries and all, end quote. Yes, this guy who probably wears three masks when going to the grocery store is one of the most relatable characters with Gen Z, according to Mars Wrigley, because they are, quote, the most anxious generation. Well, you may be right about that. Then there's that red M&M who's always in a bad mood. 
Well, he was too much of a bully before, it turns out. So now he's going to be less mean to everyone. But where the real changes come in, this is where the rubber meets the road, is with those lady M&Ms, brown and green. Did you know they were female? They are. There's brown M&M whose high heels were apparently just a little too high before and have now been reduced to a more sensible height. Oh, my God. <laughs> then there's green, the sexy M&M. I did not know any of this about the M&Ms. The sexy M&M is the green. Remember her? Check this out from an ad in 2009. Introducing mint chocolate M&M's premiums. Premium chocolate infused with the cool intensity of mint. Oh, the chocolate experience you've been waiting for. I'd say that's a wrap. I'll be in my trailer. New M&M's premiums. <laughs> M&M. That's the real woman. That's a real woman, M&M. Hello, Mars Wrigley. No, they don't agree. Gone are the green M&M's little boots and sex appeal. Replaced with, quote, cool, laid back sneakers to reflect her effortless confidence as a strong female and known for much more than her boots. You've got to be fucking kidding me. What? <laughs> this is up. I'm sorry. You've got to be joking. <laughs> Who comes up with this stuff? What is not cool or strong or female about high heels. Who is running this company? Uh, okay, I'm not done, though. Not only that, green and brown M&M had a bad relationship before. <laughs> That's changing, too. Now they will be nice to each other and, quote, throwing shine and not shade, all in an effort to, quote, reflect confidence and empowerment. I can't. We're talking about little chocolate characters, people. How much time do these candy marketing executives have on their hands? Get to work. My God, do your jobs. Do they get paid bonuses based on how many stupid woke decisions they make in a day to the to the ridiculous effort that went into modernizing these little chocolate characters so they can be more progressive? I say thanks, but no thanks. This is unbelievable. Steve Cracker, are you I've got it. Are you here? Can you talk? He, he can sometimes pop up and sometimes cannot. Is that is all of that true? Is this did we make this up? Is this actually happening? It's all true. <laughs> it came out yesterday. Seriously, somebody should get fired immediately. Uh, did you know this, Abby? Did you know that Green X Eminem was a sexy one? And that did, did you know Brown and Green were the girls and the others are the boys? I knew a lot of this. My God, I knew none of this. <laughs> Who spends their time thinking about this crap? This is why the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, okay, thank God for people like Goldie who make sure these people, these little M and M's need therapy. They need to sign up for Mind Up, and so do the executives at the company. <laughs> All right, I want to tell you about next week. Got to put this programming note in your calendar right now. We got packed shows, um, including Dr. Laura is coming on the show. We can't wait. Don't miss it. Download the show. Subscribe to uh, YouTube, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. <laughs>